The energy transition is a long and winding road, and it needs to be taken step by step. Learn more at SiemensEnergy.com. This is Barron's Live. Each weekday, we bring you live conversations from our newsrooms about what's moving the market right now. On this podcast, we take you inside those conversations, the stories, the ideas, and the stocks to watch so you can invest smarter. Now, let's dial in. Hello, uh, good morning, good afternoon, or good evening, wherever you are, and welcome to Barron's Live Market Watch Edition. Uh, I'm Brett Ahrens, I'm a columnist at Market Watch, and I'm here with Wacom Clement, who is the Chief uh, Head of Strategy at Liberum Investments in London. And we're here to talk about climate, climate change, and what it means, I guess, both for the world and perhaps more to the point for us, what it means for your investments. Welcome. Uh, good afternoon. Welcome to the welcome to the show. Well, thanks, Brett. Uh, thanks for having me. And uh, yeah, let's get right into it. This uh, is an, a, a kind of a really important topic, but also fun topic. It is. It is. Now, um, I am not an expert, but I suspect, like a lot of people, I've noticed in the last, particularly in the last year or two, that the climate seems the climate crisis seems to be getting much worse. Last year. When, as it happens, I was in the U.S., uh, family members were trying to take river cruises in Europe, and they couldn't because the rivers had all dried up. And I just read that 60,000 people in Europe died last year due to the gigantic heat waves. This time around, as it happens, I'm in London. There's no, I haven't prearranged all this. But meanwhile, all my friends back in America are walking around covering their faces because Canada apparently is on fire, and the smoke has uh, swamped New York and has affected a lot of other cities. And I saw just the other day, the United Nations had come out and said, essentially this week, we have had the hottest days on record. So Tuesday, I think was an all time record. Monday had been an all time record. So tell me, are we, how bad is it? Um, Is this it? And are we about to go through the Paris climate change cap, which I think was one and a half degrees above pre-industrial levels. Yeah, Brett, it's not just heat waves. I mean, uh, friends of mine from Australia have uh, told me once that they have decided to uh, basically uh, remove their seasons to two seasons on fire and underwater. Um, And if you look at the the news flow from uh, the New England states, the underwater part is also in play. Uh, And that Mm -hmm. is really what climate change is all about. It's not just about heat waves and things getting hotter. It is effectively uh, global warming is a misnomer. It should be called global weirding. Because what happens is there's more energy in the atmosphere and that energy gets released in all kinds of extreme weather phenomenon, which could be extreme thunderstorms, floodings, you name it. Is this it? Uh, Yes, it's the continuation of a trend that we've seen basically accelerate since the 1960s. Mm -hmm. Ironically, the CIA published uh, internal memos about the national security risks from climate change in 1965 for the first Mm -hmm. time. Uh, And we are getting closer and closer to that famous 1.5 degrees centigrade warming relative to pre-industrial standards. So basically to relative to the late 19th century. Mm -hmm. Some regions in the world have already 
basically smashed through that threshold. Australia and Africa are the notable uh, places there. Um, but if you just look at the usual weekly, monthly changes in temperatures, that's weather. That's not just mm. the climate. What, what right. climate is, is the average of the, the kind of trend in which direction we're going. And there we are really as close as makes no difference to that 1.5 degree centigrade threshold that we tried to stay under uh, yeah. Thanks to the Paris Climate Accords, but effectively have zero chance of making it. Right. Well, we we didn't really try very hard to stay under it. I mean, it was <laughs> it was it was announced in like 2015. Um, yep. I'm actually um, just a bit of backstory for for viewers and listeners. Uh, Walker and I were trying to I was trying to find earlier, and he was trying to help me find this one and a half degrees. I was trying to find one and a half degrees on top of what? What was the baseline? And actually. Having looked at various, you know, NASA and all these other websites, there didn't seem to be a very clear answer. Um, so uh, I'm still struggling a little bit to understand how, you know, essentially what the baseline is. But we didn't really strive, uh, try for very long to stay under the one and a half degrees. What does it mean when we go through the one and a half degrees? What does it mean so, for, the, for the planet? Uh, it, basically, in the first step, nothing. Uh, it's not like there's a magic uh, thing like where suddenly your 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 atmosphere turns red uh, and and your forests catch fire all of a sudden. Right. Um, but once you get above that 1.5 degree centigrade uh, barrier for a long time, you come very close to all kinds of tipping points, and these are mm -hmm. real tipping points in the sense of the Malcolm Gladwell book from I don't know a decade ago. Uh, the most important one is the permafrost in Canada and in Siberia in Russia. Mm -hmm. That is the biggest. Uh, 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 storage for carbon dioxide in mm -hmm. the world. Uh, so basically all the plants, all the trees, animals, etc., that have died are preserved there in uh, the permafrost, in frozen ground. As, if, as you approach and surpass the 1.5 degree centigrade barrier, uh, this permafrost starts to fall seasonally and then eventually uh, might not even freeze again. And that means that this carbon dioxide that is stored in the frozen ground can start to literally bubble up and move in the atmosphere and you start to get an acceleration of the global warming effect. Mm -hmm. So things just become faster and faster and faster. And in a sense, these kind of experiences over the last couple of years yet last year here in london we had the first time ever 40 degrees centigrade so for mm. our american listeners that is what is it 100 102 something like that yeah. uh which for us here in the uk is horribly horribly hot remember mm. the way we we uh find out that it is summer is the rain is warmer okay so this <laughs> is the way that's the weather that we're used to right um the how far is, I mean, look, maybe this is a very naive question, but how far is this uh, reversible through things like carbon capture? This is also the question I've had is that, you know, we all this carbon dioxide gets released into the atmosphere. Do we not have or can we not develop technology to uh, remove as much of it as possible? Uh, yes, and carbon capture will have to play a major, major role in kind of removing carbon dioxide uh, from the atmosphere, but in, in a first step also to kind of uh, capture the carbon dioxide that we emit in processes where we can't get rid of the carbon dioxide mm -hmm. emissions. Mm -hmm. So uh, 
to give you an example, uh, the manufacturing of all kinds of construction materials, most notably cement, but also all mm -hmm. kinds of industrial products. Yeah, we will have to use gas and oil and coal in order to fire those uh, uh, processes. And there will be absolutely no way to replace cement in a, in a carbon dioxide free way. And that means we have to capture that and move it yeah. safely underground. So we absolutely that will have to play a major major role and since this is a barons event uh in terms of investment opportunity huge opportunity uh mm -hmm. in carbon capture there um but at the moment we're not there we only have kind of uh experimental and demonstration plants and we are now in the situation where over the next 10 years we have to scale it up quite dramatically now, Saudi Aramco had something on their website uh, a while back, a while back, saying that they had technology that could drastically reduce the um, CO2 emissions from uh, essentially cars and trucks. Uh, I chased down with them with their press office, and they were unwilling or unable to give me much more in detail. It seemed the sort of thing which was interesting that I hadn't heard more about this from different sources. Is that something? Uh, you know about as technology. So there is a very, very simple way to reduce the carbon emissions from uh, uh, cars and trucks. It's the same way how you can reduce the carbon emissions from airplanes and ships quite dramatically. It's called biofuels. Yeah, mm -hmm. It's just using fuels that wow. are coming out of regenerative material, mostly wood chips. Uh, and, and that's why a company like Porsche, the sports car uh, manufacturer, mm -hmm. for example, has insisted in Germany and in, in Europe that these biofuels are going to be a valid alternative mm -hmm. to electric cars and, and things like that. And, and remember, I'm a big fan of the electrification of cars. But mm -hmm. if we're talking about long haul heavy goods transportation, so things that trucks do, things that airplanes and ships do, even with all the progress in battery technology, we're not going to do it. Be able to do it with electric planes and electric trucks. Uh, we right. will have to rely on things like hydrogen-powered trucks and things like that. Right. And actually, I mean, one of the things that's been raised is that the transition to a greener economy, for example, electric cars and all the rest of it, itself requires an enormous amount of digging up of resources and enormous amount of energy. Is that? Uh, I mean, what is the sort of the payoff? In terms of how much extra energy do we have to expend to reduce our long-term energy output? Uh, on the energy front, it's not that much of a problem, uh, okay. especially because a lot of the energy that you uh, that you require uh, is in the form of electricity. And nowadays, you know, every country in the world, and, and that's something that's not well known, but I would say the vast majority of countries in the world, there are a few exceptions like South Africa, Turkey, and uh, uh, China, the cheapest form of electricity is either wind or solar. The world's cheapest form of electricity is wind energy created in the West Texas plains in the Permian Basin, to be precise. Wow. Uh, which is hilarious uh, mm -hmm. because, uh, you know, this is also where we dig for shale oil and shale yeah. gas. Uh, yeah. And that is far more expensive than creating mm -hmm. the wind there. Um, right. But uh, so, so you can create, re use renewable energy in order to do that. Um, there are all kinds of problems with renewable energies in terms of the so-called intermittency problem. The wind doesn't blow all the time and the sun shines only during the day. Yeah. Uh, we can go into that. There are solutions for that. Um, however, 
Uh, where the problem becomes more of a problem is in the use of critical materials. So uh, mm -hmm. lithium, most importantly, and other minerals and, and mining things that we mm -hmm. have to dig up in vast quantities. Um, and that is something where a lot of research has, has shown that, yes, that is making a lot, creating a lot of dirt, creating a lot mm -hmm. of greenhouse gases in the short run. Uh, but as, for example, car batteries become more prevalent, uh, recycling will take a bigger and bigger share. It's essentially like what you have with gold. Gold mining accounts for 3% of gold supply mm -hmm. in the world every year. Yeah. All the rest of it comes basically from recycling. Yeah. Okay. Now, um, the interesting thing, given the the scale of the, the climate crisis, uh, rising temperatures and so on and so forth, one might have naively have thought that uh, funds that have invested in green energy, green tech, would have done phenomenally well. I went back and had a look at one of the biggest, uh, the iShares ETF in America. It's been around since 2009. And it's been over the long period, it's been a pretty poor, poor performer. It's been a much worse performer than uh, traditional um, oil, oil and gas ETF, for example. What's been going on with traditional green energy? Before we get into, um, you have some uh, very innovative, and in unusual, way, yeah. <laughs> unusual. Tell me what's been going on with, you know, why aren't investors, are investors making a fortune out of wind and solar? And if not, why not? Uh, I tend to compare it to the beginning of my career back a long time ago in the late 1990s when we had the tech bubble about the internet. Right. Uh, why did we have a tech bubble and why do we have stock market bubbles so often? It is you have a new technology with huge growth potential yeah. where we don't know what could possibly go wrong until we actually figure it out. Mm -hmm. uh, and then what happens is over investment, everybody jumps onto the bandwagon in the 90s. Those were the famous dot com uh, companies. Yep. And over the last 20 years, that's what happened in the renewable space, whether you look at solar or wind or, or related things. Uh, huge growth of those technologies. But so many people were jumping onto that bandwagon. So many people were starting to build solar cells. And then the yeah. Chinese came and undercut the prices for everybody. Uh, okay. And that was basically then when, when the stocks crashed, most notably in early adopter countries like my home country of Germany, uh, where a lot of investors got heavily burned in 2011 to 2013, okay. when a large number of German solar uh, cell factories just went under because they couldn't mm. compete on price. And that is the problem with renewable energy in the conventional way. It has all the hallmarks of what you need in order to create bubbles. Right. Huge growth potential, unknown technology, uh, where we don't know where the pitfalls lie in implementing those technologies. Okay. So to put it very simply, what are the prospects at the moment um, for investing in uh, traditional climate change before we get into adaptation, getting into new technology, green technology. Is this an area where investors are or are not well advised to be investing money? Yes and no. <laughs> Wonderful <laughs> answer. Um, so yes, in those area where you have existing solar and wind farms that are generating electricity and that is essentially mm -hmm. like a utility. Yep. So investing in those uh, existing uh, utilities, great idea. 
It has mm. all the benefits of a classical utility investments, reliable cash flows, high dividends, high income, wonderful. Right. Where it gets more speculative is if you look into the, the companies that actually manufacture solar cells, wind turbines, and all those things. Uh, I would say on a shorter term outlook over the next one to two years, they might actually be a good investment simply because they have been beaten down so much over the last two years that they are now right. very, very cheap. Is it a good investment over five years or 10 very difficult to say. It's mm -hmm. definitely high-risk investment. Okay. All right. Now, let's get into the meat of this because you had said to me a while ago something very interesting, which was that the the real, as you saw it, the real investment opportunity, particularly for, I guess, members of the public, uh, people who aren't running private equity funds or whatever, the real investment opportunity was in adaptation to climate change rather than the technologies designed, as it were, to prevent climate change. What do you mean by that? So it's it's the following thought. Uh, as we've discussed at the beginning uh, of, of this event, we've already kind of, as much as makes no difference, broken through the 1.5 degree Paris climate barrier. And it's like, we're there. Yep. The world is getting hotter. We have more floods. We have more hurricanes. We have more forest fires, etc. Yet, most of the investments, roughly a three to one ratio, 75% of the investments go into zero carbon technology like wind, solar, electric mm -hmm. batteries, etc. And only the rest goes into, well, how do we deal with the fact that we already have a climate that is much more volatile and, and aggressive? Uh, do we invest in things like companies that build flood walls and flood defenses? Mm. Do we invest in companies that help our buildings make more resilient against higher heat or more mm. windstorms, etc.? So think about it this way. Um, I live in London. You are in London at the moment. Uh, we here in London are protected by the Thames barrier, which is a flood defense uh, that has been inaugurated in 1984, 85, mid-80s, and mm -hmm. that helps prevent a flooding of the River Thames. Now, the Thames barrier is a fantastic thing, and it uh, prevents us from flooding the city of London on a, on a regular basis. Uh, and estimates range that about $400 billion in real estate is protected by those flood defenses at the moment. But it's only fit for purpose until 2050. Mm. Uh, what do we do afterwards? We need to build better flood defenses and not just for the Thames itself, but all the tributary uh, uh, yeah. rivers that are going there. Because otherwise your skyscrapers in the city of London and your, your townhouses and mansions in uh, Chelsea, yeah. um, they're all going to be gone. Uh? Now, when you say fit for purpose, do you mean it's wearing out or the climate's getting more difficult? It is getting more difficult, and uh, basically there there are more spring tides with seawater rising. Uh, those spring tides are coming closer to the level of what the dam can handle. Oh, okay. uh, so you need to build a bigger dam uh, oh, okay. to kind so, of paraphrase the old sharks. Yeah. Uh, so, right. So it's so it's not a case that it's just been around for a long time and needs to be replaced. So no, it needs to be it, taller. It needs to be more aggressive. And, and that means you literally have to have 
construction companies that mm. build that stuff and know how to build that stuff. And that's where the investment opportunity is. Mm. Uh, it is with companies that know how to build flood defenses. It mm -hmm. is with companies that know how to uh, build houses and buildings, uh, for example, with windows uh, that are reflecting more of the UV sunlight so it doesn't mm. heat up inside as much. Mm. Uh, things like that are where the real investment opportunity is. Interesting. Now, you have an adaptation index of yes. stocks that are in a prime position to either do this or in a prime position to do this. Yeah. Walk me, walk us through your index. Walk so basically, stars. yes. So basically what we did is we looked at uh, the research and looked at which sectors contribute to this climate change adaptation. Uh, as I said, these are a lot of them are construction, construction material companies, engineering companies. Uh, but you also find companies that, for example, uh, create seeds that are drought resistant, mm -hmm. things like that, um, uh, as well as uh, tech companies that are working towards optimizing water usage and sewage treatment and things mm. like that in order to prevent sewage systems from overflowing when there's too much rain yep. and there's a hurricane, et cetera. Yep. So we looked at that and then we basically created for the UK and for Europe, ex-UK, an equal weighted basket of these companies in Europe. And we tracked their performance going starting in 2007, so 15, 16 years now of track record, and compared it to not just the typical market indices like the FTSE in the UK and the stocks in, in Europe, but mm -hmm. also the ESG indices that are commonly used for these ESG funds and, and yep. climate change funds. And lo and behold, in the UK, that adaptation index outperformed by about 3% per year mm -hmm. uh, since 27, uh, 2007 uh, and in Europe by 5% per year. Uh, so it's quite a dramatic outperformance, again, because you were less prone to investing in these kind of bubble bust mm. stocks. Yeah. Now, are these um, these companies, to how far is that outperformance driven by uh, demand for uh, environmental adaptation and how, how far? So how far more is the more. environmental? Okay, got it. More and more. So to give you an example, so the prime example in Europe is a company called Saint-Gobain, French company that makes all kinds of building materials. Uh, mm. They uh, literally, wherever you build a skyscraper or even a, a, per, a, a private home uh, in Europe, some of their stuff is in there. Uh, whether it's insulation material or window glasses, sheet panes, uh, stuff like that. Uh, and originally that was all conventional. Nowadays, more than 50% of their revenue comes from uh, climate-related adaptation materials. Isn't that interesting? What's the? Yeah. Do you have the PE ratio on that stock? Sorry, oh God, I would have to look it up in my uh. smart Bloomberg <laughs> terminal here. Um, see, but it, this is this is how listeners know that they're getting they're getting the live uh, un, oh, yes. very raw raw performance here. This oh, is, yes. uh, unprepared, unprepared. Totally oh, unprepared. Start... Keep talking amongst yourselves. Yeah. Hum yourselves. Oh, well, the, the minute you start talking about stocks, I want to know the PE ratio. I want. To, I'm gonna. I, I can't fire too many questions at you about dividend That's yields. Fine, but the PE the ratio at the moment is a really challenging 9.9. .9. No. <laughs> yes. Are you kidding? 
Sangobar is 9.9. Oh my god. And uh, estimated earnings growth over the next 12 months is. Ba -dum, ba -dum, bum, bum, bum. Again, hum yourself. Yeah, uh, no. Well, this is this is this is the this is the stuff that actually people really want to know. If you want yeah, to invest in stuff, uh, you need to 21, know. It's, it's, a, it's, a, it's just a, a cool wow. twenty-two percent earnings growth at a, at wow. a ten times PE. I am constantly stunned at how many once you get outside of America, particularly outside of the so-called Magnificent Seven um, or the Nasdaq, how actually how stocks are not a lot of stocks are not very very expensive it's there, yes. there are a lot of bargains outside of america and and i would i would argue that this even happens within the s p 500 once you leave the top 50 companies behind uh right. the valuation become really really you know cheap right um well that's uh that's good give me some other names well, in the U.S., I would I would say uh, something that is really interesting uh, in a similar vein is uh, what's water technologies and advanced drainage systems. That really is all about water system drainage and and sewage uh, technologies. Uh, they trade at a twelve times PE at the moment, mm. uh, so they are also relatively cheap. Um, and then you can go through it. There's air conditioning is a big, big topic. And I'm not talking about air conditioning like you know it in big cities in the U.S. with your electric air conditioning unit from Fujitsu, etc., mm -hmm. but more about air ventilation. Uh, so building houses where the airflow is optimized in order to reduce the need for heating or cooling. Uh, that is a classic adaptation technology. That's interesting. I understand from people who know Australia well that that is quite common in Australia. People um, have houses outside Sydney and they're designed in such a way that the actual um, electric AC needs are quite uh, quite slight compared to, yes. for example, houses in and, America. And, and ironically, where you see that also a lot is a lot of emerging markets. You go to the Caribbean, mm. people don't have the money for air conditioning yeah. units. Yeah, yeah. So they have to build the houses in such a way that they kind of air condition passively. Sorry, carry on. Uh, go ahead. If, if you're talking about stocks, by the way, since we're yep. on a, on a yes. podcast, uh, what's co? Uh, WATS Co. Uh, okay. does a lot of these airflow and air uh, flow techniques technologies, uh, and that's a eight billion, nine billion dollar company in the U.S. Well, um, and can you just talk us through a few other stocks? We've got some questions from readers. I'll get to in a second, but uh, or viewers, I should say. But uh, other stock ideas that you might want to mention. Um, I would like to to look into Mastec and. Uh, Escape, uh, two engineering companies that do a lot of their business in these kinds of adaptation to climate change. Uh, so they work a lot with uh, government uh, entities, uh, government contractors in building flood defenses, in building uh, other structures that, that uh, are needed to adapt to climate change. So these are, again, because they're engineering companies, they're mm. kind of old economy. They mm. tend to trade at 12 to 15 time multiples at the moment. Right. And you go like, really, that's not a, not a challenging valuation. How much, how much do, they in, do they have essentially proprietary technology? Uh, how much is it, are these companies where they have you know, patents and so on that are really, really valuable and can be leveraged uh, a lot going forward. Uh, patents, I'm not so sure, uh, because mm -hmm. most of those guys have uh, consulting contracts. And so it's really about the experience and the know-how of 
knowing how to do these things properly. Right. Uh, I, I usually tell them, tell people that, you know, we, we tend to think in the US about the Army Corps of Engineer that, that yep. builds all that stuff. Um, but in fact, it's these engineering companies that have the real know-how and uh, the Army Corps of Engineer basically just buys it in. Got it. Now, I've got some very basic questions from, from listeners, viewers, and or viewers. Um, can we please repeat the stock symbols and spell spell the names of the companies? My, my apologies to viewers and listeners. Um, so, Saint-Gobain, uh, I have here a Bloomberg terminal. That's S-G-O-F-P. Now, the question is, where can I find your stock uh, symbol for the U.S.? The way it will be spelled for uh, Americans is Saint-Gobain. G-O-B-A-I-N. Pronounced Saint-Gobain, but it's French. Saint-Gobain, G-O-B-A-I-N. Then the next one... Uh, then we have Advanced Drainage Systems, ADS. Okay. Uh, advanced Drainage Systems. The ticker is WMS. Okay. And uh, the other one is What's Water Technologies? Mm -hmm. Water Technology, which is WTS. Yeah. And not an F at the end. Okay, so right. uh, it's okay. at the end. Uh, and then Watsco, the engineering company. Sorry, the the uh, air conditioning company is WSO. Okay. And Mastec, the engineering company is Mastec is MTZ. Very good. All right. Now I got some. I got some. That's fabulous. I got some detailed questions here. A viewer called Brendan asks. What role or importance do you think long duration energy storage LDES mm -hmm. will will play in the transition ratio of LDES to short duration, the prospects for alternative chemistries versus lithium ion? Gosh, this is very detailed. Can you comment on the prospects for lithium supply in the next 10 years? As I we can. This deep part of the adoption curve. Thank you. No, I, had, no. I had no doubts you would be able to. I explain <laughs> well, for everyone watching and listening. Uh, Wacom is a physicist. He's a yes. German physicist. So he can I, answer any technical question. I am I'm literally a trained physicist, uh, and to be more precise, I'm a real-life Sheldon Cooper from Big Bang Theory because that's what I did during my PhD. I did theoretical uh, physics, uh, uh, astrophysics in my in my PhD. Oh my Anyhow, uh, when it comes to long-duration energy st uh, storage, maybe as an explainer, there is there are two kinds of energy storage. Short-duration energy storage are essentially condensators or little batteries that you charge up with wind or solar energy, and that can hold that energy so that when the wind uh, doesn't blow or the sun doesn't shine, it can be released into the grid and you kind of can gloss over those fluctuations in sunshine and wind. Uh, the problem with short duration energy storage is that the current technology we have typically is a energy storage for two to four hours. The physical limit is around about eight hours. That's not a lot to say the least. So people are actively working on long duration energy storage where you can hold that energy for days, weeks, or possibly months. Mm -hmm. Very early stage. At the moment, uninvestable. 
uh, mm -hmm. simply because there are no listed companies. There's hardly any private equity available. So we're still in the venture capital stage and it, it will become prime time in the 2030s. I expect it to oh, okay. be ramped up in 2030 to 2035 mm -hmm. and it is super promising. I am mm -hmm. very excited about that technology, but it is too early to really benefit from it just yet. If our viewers have an idea how to do that in a listed stock, please let me know because I tried, <laughs> I couldn't find anything. Lithium, uh, yeah. uh, talking about lithium and, and in the same vein, let's talk also about cobalt and things like that because they are key elements needed for the energy transition. Uh, cobalt mostly in batteries. Yep. Uh, the good news there is we're working on improving the battery technology so we can go cobalt and nickel free. Uh, half of Tesla's car batteries by now are produced without using any cobalt or nickel. So, oh, yeah, and uh, there's a Chinese company that uh, basically is making these cobalt and nickel free batteries now basically what ready do, for prime time. What do they use? Uh, it's a different, it's a phosphate uh, stuff. And this is where I'm a physicist, but don't know exact details. Okay. But basically, it's it's a phosphate, solid state, whatever it is. It. In any case, that stuff is being rolled out. The one thing that we can't get rid of at the moment is lithium. Mm -hmm. Lithium mining is one of those areas where there's a lot of investment flowing in at the moment. Right. And my biggest fear about that is, yes, we need a lot of that stuff, but we also know that mining companies are really bad at allocating capital over the yeah. cycle. Uh, and I think we're at the moment in one of those overinvestment stages uh, where a lot of people pouring a ton of money into lithium mines in Nevada or Australia. And by the way, you correct me if it's Nevada or Nevada. Uh, who knows? Not even who knows, who knows? Even it depends. I think it's going to depend on whether you live there, whether you're from Las Vegas or Reno or whatever. So okay. Yeah. So in any case, these lithium mines uh, are basically built out as we speak with tons and tons of investments. And my biggest fear about them is that we're mm. over investing and have now and then eventually end up with oversupply of lithium. Okay, but that'll be good for the for green technology, if not for the oh, miners, right? No, the, the prices come down rapidly. And, and uh, it's, it's, by the way, uh, it's one of those fun things. Uh, we forecasters, and I count myself as part of them because professional forecaster, uh, we are notoriously bad at forecasting. I mean, it's rubbish, I think, is the technical term. Um, and uh, the one area where we constantly underestimate future growth is mm -hmm. when it comes to the decay of prices for wind, solar, and battery technology. Interesting. That is just like for the last 15 years, every year we make forecasts, whether it's BP or Exxon mm -hmm. or Bloomberg or whoever it is, and they always two years, three years later turn out to be wildly wow. pessimistic. Interesting. Interesting. Now, I got a question from John here. How important will green hydrogen be to the survival of the planet and who will lead this investment? So there's there's a bit of a loaded question. I want to push back on one thing. The planet will survive. Don't worry about planet Earth when it comes It'll to climate us. change. It'll be, it'll be human beings. Yeah. <laughs> even, even us human beings. I'm not too worried about the extinction of human right. beings. Uh, we will muddle through. It just will be very, very inconvenient to hang yeah. around. Yeah. Um, but to, to be more focused on the, the green hydrogen question, I think hydrogen is 
the key fuel for the future for any kind of transport. I, I mentioned that already. When it comes to ships, uh, container ships, uh, when it comes to airplanes, long distance haulage of cargo, all of that will have to be fueled by electrolyzer cells, basically fueled by hydrogen. Um, whether it's going to be fueled by ammonium, which is a basic way of storing hydrogen in a more compact, energy-dense form, mm -hmm. that's something we'll have to figure out. But hydrogen is the fuel of the future when it comes to these long-distance applications. Interesting. Okay, I got a question here from Andrew, and I suppose to some extent you've already um, answered it in bits and pieces, but maybe a sort of an over overview here. What do you see as the time frame for the various opportunities that we're discussing or suggesting. And I think that means not just in terms of affecting the environment, but also the investment timeframe where, yeah. you know, our, as you said, a lot of things have, have come down a long way in, in the last year or two. So in terms of the, the timeframe investing and for the impact on the environment. So let me put that into different buckets. Um, I've already mentioned these kind of adaptation plays uh, in the construction infrastructure engineering space. That's from today for the next five to 10 years uh, while we adapt to this changing climate. Uh, when it comes to renewable energy and battery technology, as I mentioned, good, uh, good outlook for the next two years or so, but I'm a bit worried about the next five to 10 years. Mm -hmm. Um, then the other things that I want to mention is investable today and a really good investment opportunity is nuclear power because mm. nuclear power will have to play an important role in the energy transition itself, right. uh, at least until we have long duration energy storage and other facilities that can uh, help us over that thing. So any kind of company that runs nuclear power plants or even better builds nuclear power plants. Yeah. Uh, and here in particular, the two countries that build out nuclear power the most uh, in the world are China and India. But if you don't want to invest in Chinese nuclear power companies, which I fully understand, by the way, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, and you want to go for developed markets where you have serious uh, accounting standards and stuff like that, you effectively have to go to South Korea and the UK. Those are the two okay. countries that build the most and invest the most in nuclear power. What, what stocks are we talking about there? So in South Korea, uh, this is uh, Hitachi. Um, in the UK, uh, the one company that is, it's tiny, it's just 3 billion market cap. So for US standards, that's small, but it is okay. Babcock, uh, which is a company that maintains the nuclear submarine fleet of the Royal Navy. So they actually okay. know a little bit about okay. uh, nuclear power. Um, and uh, then the other one uh, is um, Boig. God help me spe okay. uh, spelling. That's a French construction oh, company. Oh, is that B O U Y G U E S? Yes, exactly. <laughs> I'll, I'll, I'll spell that again. B O U Y G U E S. And I'm not going to attempt is... to give it the the perfect pronounce, French pronunciation. No, it's it's absolutely. I mean, if It'll you're be French Greek or something. Yes. It's absolutely horrific, uh, but the, the ticker is ENFP, and uh, there's a ENFP, okay. ENFP uh, in Paris, um, mm -hmm. but they must have an uh, an ADR in the US somewhere. Oh, okay, okay, yes, I'm sure it will. I'm sure it will. The, the, so the nuclear model? power. Sorry, just to complete that thought. Nuclear power. Really a big fan of it. I think that's really an underestimated opportunity. 
Uh, and then we come into things like uh, small modular reactors and molten salt reactors to the next generation nuclear power. Mm. Uh, Teradyne, uh, I think, is the company in the US that, that rolls that out. Um, very early stage, very speculative, but I think it's also going to be a major, major driver of climate mm. change adaptation in the 2030s. It, it, it's been a fascinating sort of um, a bit of illogicality, if you like, from uh, very, people who are very green, because they've simultaneously, some of them have simultaneously argued that we're in a climate catastrophe, that we're basically on the Titanic and we've, we've already hit the iceberg. And at the same time, they've said, well, you know, we can't, we, we must use, expand nuclear power because it's dangerous. And I've, yeah. am, am, I, am I alone in thinking that that doesn't really add up? It doesn't add up at all. Uh, and, and the interesting thing is that here in Europe, where this kind of energy transition talk is, I would say, most advanced, uh, we are at the forefront of, of mm -hmm. making that transition. Um, you have huge differences from country to country. Yeah. In France, 75% of French electricity is made with nuclear power plants, and yeah. they insist that this is the way to kind of have a zero carbon uh, uh, future. And they're right. The, yeah. the lifetime emissions of a nuclear power plant are lower than wind energy and solar wow. energy. It's ridiculously wow. low. Yeah. And we can do it now, basically. And we, we, we already have the technology. We just have to roll it out, or the French have rolled it out. Yeah. Meanwhile, you go across the river and across the border to Germany, and they just, in the middle of an energy crisis, turned off their last nuclear power plant. It, mm -hmm. the, the, the What's up with that? Why, why are they so insane yes. on the subject of nuclear power? It is, it is insanity. It is, it is really insanity and it is a completely irrational thing. And as a German, I trace it back to the Chernobyl disaster in 1986. Okay. Uh, if you have the time, Google uh, an animated map of the nuclear fallout from Chernobyl. You can find yeah. it from the UK's uh, metro, uh, meteorological office, Met Office in mm -hmm. the UK. Yeah. Um, Germany and Sweden were the countries hardest hit by the nuclear fallout mm. from Chernobyl. Uh, I distinctly remember how my parents were told through the TV that, and by the authorities, they have to destroy the fruit and vegetable that they grew in their yeah. gardens. Yeah. Now, remember, this was much closer, as a generation closer to the Second World War. Yeah. Germans were very much into growing their own fruit and veg. Yeah. Yeah. And now you have to basically destroy it because it's mm -hmm. unsafe. And mm -hmm. that's the reason why in Got Germany it. and in Sweden, you have an irrational fear about nuclear power. Isn't that interesting? All right, look, Joachim, thank you so much for coming on Barron's Live and talking us through all of this stuff. Um, I think we've run out of time, and I want to thank you and thank listeners and viewers for joining us. And um, you can uh, listen to this again, I believe, on our podcast, though the technology of how to do that is it's beyond me. Um, nonetheless, it's out there. It's out there. So, welcome. Thank you very much. Uh, all you viewers and listeners, thank you very much, and join us again next week on Barron's Live. The energy transition is a long and winding road, and it needs to be taken step by step. Learn more at SiemensEnergy.com.